0: This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway. Bunnieslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. can't see it, but it's, it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so... Uh, this month, we're going to be doing Jack London stories, so check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes, so check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast, you'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about. Underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, Listen for the episode uh, of, uh, I think it's D U G S, uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows, we'll get them their own podcast feeds if you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself. Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers and also probably we're going to have some of the shows by Dave from Dave and hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us, but you know. I love producing podcasts, so if you've got a podcast idea, track me down, and we'll do something, especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um, I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But yeah, no, uh, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio? And keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go, Jack London, right now.
1: Recording by Matt Saw The Beginning of the End As early as January 1913, Ernest saw the true trend of affairs, but he could not get his brother leaders to see the vision of the iron heel that had arisen in his brain. They were too confident. Events were rushing too rapidly to culmination. A crisis had come in world affairs. The American oligarchy was practically in possession of the world market, and scores of countries were flung out of that market with unconsumable and unsalable surpluses on their hands. For such countries, nothing remained but reorganization. They could not continue their method of producing surpluses. The capitalistic system, so far as they were concerned, had hopelessly broken down. The reorganization of these countries took the form of revolution. It was a time of confusion and violence. Everywhere, institutions and governments were crashing. Everywhere, with the exception of two or three countries, the erstwhile capitalist masters fought bitterly for their possessions. But the governments were taken away from them by the militant proletariat. At last was being realized Karl Marx's classic. The knell of private capitalist property sounds, the expropriators are expropriated. And as fast as capitalistic governments crashed, cooperative commonwealths arose in their place. Why does the United States lag behind? Get busy, you American revolutionists! What's the matter with America? Were the messages sent to us by our successful comrades in other lands. But we could not keep up. The oligarchy stood in the way. Its bulk, like that of some huge monster, blocked our path. Wait till we take office in the spring, we answered then you'll see. Behind this lay our secret. We had won over the Grangers, and in the spring, a dozen states would pass into their hands by virtue of the elections of the preceding fall. At once would be instituted a dozen cooperative Commonwealth states. After that, the rest would be easy. But what if the Grangers failed to get possession? Ernest demanded, and his comrades called him a calamity howler. But this failure to get possession was not the chief danger that Ernest had in mind. What he foresaw was the defection of the great labor unions and the rise of the castes. Ghent has taught the oligarchs how to do it, Ernest said. I'll wager they've made a textbook out of his benevolent feudalism. Note. Our Benevolent Feudalism, a book published in 1902 AD by W.J. Ghent. It has always been insisted that Ghent put the idea of the oligarchy into the minds of the great capitalists. This belief persists throughout the literature of the three centuries of the Iron Heel, and even in the literature of the first century of the Brotherhood of Man. Today we know better, but our knowledge does not overcome the fact that Ghent remains the most abused innocent man in all history. Never shall I forget the night when, after a hot discussion with half a dozen labour leaders, Ernest turned to me and said quietly, That settles it. The Iron Heel has won. The end is in sight. This little conference in our home was unofficial, but Ernest, like the rest of his comrades, was working for assurances from the labor leaders that they would call out their men in the next general strike. O'Connor, the president of the Association of Machinists, had been foremost of the six leaders present in refusing to give such assurance. You have seen that you were beaten soundly at your old tactics of strike and boycott, Ernest urged. O'Connor and the others nodded their heads. And you saw what a general strike would do, Ernest went on. We stopped the war with Germany. Never was there so fine a display of the solidarity and the power of labor. Labor can and will rule the world. If you continue to stand with us, we'll put an end to the reign of capitalism. It is your only hope. And what is more, you know it. There is no other way out. No matter what you do under your old tactics, you are doomed to defeat if for no other reason, because the masters control the courts. Note. As a sample of the decisions of the courts averse to labor, the following instances are given. In the coal mining regions, the employment of children was notorious. In 1905 AD, labor succeeded in getting a law passed in Pennsylvania providing the proof of the age of the child and of certain educational qualifications must accompany the oath of the parent. This was promptly declared unconstitutional by the Luzerne County Court, on the ground that it violated the 14th Amendment in that it discriminated between individuals of the same class, namely children above 14 years of age and children below. The state court sustained the decision. The New York Court of Special Sessions in 1905 AD declared unconstitutional the law prohibiting minors and women from working in factories after 9 o'clock at night, the ground taken being that such a law was class legislation. Again, the bakers of that time were terribly overworked. The New York legislature passed a law restricting working bakeries to 10 hours a day. In 1906 A.D., the Supreme Court of the United States declared this law to be unconstitutional. In part, the decision read, There is no reasonable ground for interfering with the liberty of persons or the right of free contract by determining the hours of labor in the occupation of a baker. You run ahead too fast, O'Connor answered. You don't know all the ways out. There is another way out. We know what we're about. We're sick of strikes. They've got us beaten that way to a frazzle. But I don't think we'll ever need to call our men out again. What is your way out? Ernest demanded bluntly. O'Connor laughed and shook his head. I can tell you this much. We've not been asleep, and we're not dreaming now. There's nothing to be afraid of, or ashamed of, I hope, Ernest challenged. I guess we know our business best, was the retort. It's a dark business, from the way you hide it, Ernest said with growing anger. We've paid for our experience in sweat and blood, and we've earned all that's coming to us, was the reply. Charity begins at home. If you're afraid to tell me your way out, I'll tell it to you. Ernest's blood was up. You're going in for grab-sharing. You've made terms with the enemy. That's what you've done. You've sold out the cause of labor. Of all labor. You're leaving the battlefield like cowards. I'm not saying anything, O'Connor answered sullenly. Only I guess we know what's better for us a little bit better than you do. And you don't care a cent for what is best for the rest of labor. You kick it into the ditch. I'm not saying anything, O'Connor replied, except that I'm president of the Machinists' Association and it's my business to consider the interests of the men I represent, that's all. And then, when the labor leaders had left, Ernest, with the calmness of defeat, outlined to me the course of events to come. The socialists used to foretell with joy, he said, the coming of the day when organized labor, defeated on the industrial field, would come over onto the political field. Well, the Iron Heel has defeated the labor unions on the industrial field and driven them over to the political field. And instead of this being joyful for us, it will be a source of grief. The Iron Heel learned its lesson. We showed it our power in the general strike. It has taken steps to prevent another general strike. But how? I asked. Simply by subsidizing the great unions. They won't join in the next general strike. Therefore, it won't be a general strike. But the Iron Heel can't maintain so costly a program forever, I objected. Oh, it hasn't subsidized all of the unions. That's not necessary. Here is what's going to happen. Wages are going to be advanced and hours shortened in the railroad unions, the iron and steel workers unions, and the engineer and machinist unions. In these unions, more favorable conditions will continue to prevail. Membership in these unions will become like seats in paradise. Still, I don't see, I objected. What is to become of the other unions? There are far more unions outside of this combination than in it. The other unions will be ground out of existence. All of them. For, don't you see, the railwaymen, machinists and engineers, iron and steel workers do all of the vitally essential work in our machine civilization. Assured of their faithfulness, the Iron Heel can snap its fingers at all the rest of labor. Iron, steel, coal... Machinery and transportation constitute the backbone of the whole industrial fabric. But coal? I queried. There are nearly a million coal miners. They are practically unskilled labor. They will not count. Their wages will go down and their hours will increase. They will be slaves like all the rest of us, and they will become about the most bestial of all of us. They will be compelled to work, just as the farmers are compelled to work now for the masters who rob them of their land. And the same with all the other Unions outside the Combination. Watch them wobble and go to pieces, and their members become slaves driven to toil by empty stomachs and the law of the land. Do you know what will happen to Farley and his strikebreakers? I'll tell you. Strikebreaking as an occupation will cease. There won't be any more strikes. In place of strikes will be slave revolts. Farley and his gang will be promoted to slave driving. It will be called that. It will be called enforcing the law of the land that compels the laborers to work it simply prolongs the fight this treachery of the big unions heaven only knows now where and when the revolution will triumph note james farley a notorious strikebreaker of the period a man more courageous than ethical and of undeniable ability he rose high under the rule of the iron heel and finally was translated into the oligarch class He was assassinated in 1932 by Sarah Jenkins, whose husband, 30 years before, had been killed by Father's strikebreakers. But with such a powerful combination as the oligarchy and the big unions, is there any reason to believe that the revolution will ever triumph? I queried. May not the combination endure forever? He shook his head. One of our generalizations is that every system founded upon class and caste contains within itself the germs of its own decay. When a system is founded upon class... How can caste be prevented? The Iron Heel will not be able to prevent it, and in the end, caste will destroy the Iron Heel. The oligarchs have already developed caste among themselves, but wait until the favored unions develop caste. The Iron Heel will use all its power to prevent it, but it will fail. In the favored unions are the flower of the American working men. They are strong, efficient men. They have become members of those unions through competition for place, Every fit working man in the United States will be possessed by the ambition to become a member of the favoured unions. The oligarchy will encourage such ambition, and the consequent competition. Thus will the strong men, who might else be revolutionists, be won away and their strength used to bolster the oligarchy. On the other hand, the Labour castes, the members of the favoured unions, will strive to make their organisations into close corporations. And they will succeed. Membership in the Labour castes will become hereditary. Sons will succeed fathers, and there will be no inflow of new strength from that eternal reservoir of strength, the common people. This will mean deterioration of the labor castes, and in the end they will become weaker and weaker. At the same time, and as an institution, they will become temporarily all-powerful. They will be like the guards of the palace in old Rome, and there will be palace revolutions whereby the labor castes will seize the reins of power. And there will be counter-palace revolutions of the oligarchs, and sometimes the one, and sometimes the other will be in power. And through it all, the inevitable caste weakening will go on, so that in the end the common people will come into their own. This foreshadowing of a slow social evolution was made when Ernest was first depressed by the defection of the great unions. I never agreed with him in it, and I disagree now, as I write these lines more heartily than ever. For even now, though Ernest is gone, we are on the verge of the revolt that will sweep all oligarchies away. Yet I have here given Ernest's prophecy, because it was his prophecy. In spite of his belief in it, he worked like a giant against it. And he, more than any man, has made possible the revolt that even now waits the signal to burst forth. Note. Everhard's social foresight was remarkable. As clearly as in the light of past events, he saw the defection of the favoured unions, the rise and the slow decay of the labour castes, and the struggle between the decaying oligarchs and labour castes for control of the great governmental machine. But if the oligarchy persists, I asked him that evening, what will become of the great surpluses that will fall to its share every year? The surpluses will have to be expended somehow, he answered, and trust the oligarchs to find a way. Magnificent roads will be built. There will be great achievements in science, and especially in art. When the oligarchs have completely mastered the people, they will have time to spare for other things. They will become worshippers of beauty. They will become art lovers. And under their direction, and generously rewarded, Will toil the artists. The result will be great art, for no longer, as up to yesterday, will the artists pander to the bourgeois taste of the middle class. It will be great art, I tell you, and wonder cities will arise that will make tawdry and cheap the cities of old time, and in these cities will the oligarchs dwell and worship beauty. Note, we cannot but marvel at Everhard's foresight. Before ever the thought of wonder-cities like Ardis and Asgard entered the minds of the oligarchs, Everhard saw those cities and the inevitable necessity for their creation. Thus will the surplus be constantly expended while labor does the work. The building of these great works and cities will give a starvation ration to millions of common laborers, for the enormous bulk of the surplus will compel an equally enormous expenditure, and the oligarchs will build for a thousand years, aye, for ten thousand years. They will build as the Egyptians and the Babylonians never dreamed of building. And when the oligarchs have passed away, their great roads and their wonder cities will remain for the Brotherhood of Labour to tread upon and dwell within. Note, and since that day of prophecy have passed away the three centuries of the Iron Hill and the four centuries of the Brotherhood of Man, and today we tread the roads and dwell in the cities that the oligarchs built. It is true we are even now building still more wonderful wonder cities, but the wonder cities of the oligarchs endure. And I write these lines in Ardis, one of the most wonderful of them all. These things the oligarchs will do, because they cannot help doing them. These great works will be the form their expenditure of the surplus will take, and in the same way that the ruling classes of Egypt of long ago expended the surplus they robbed from the people by the building of temples and pyramids. Under the oligarchs will flourish, not a priest class, but an artist class, and in place of the merchant class of bourgeoisie will be the labour castes, And beneath will be the abyss wherein will fester and starve and rot and ever renew itself the common people the great bulk of the population and in the end who knows in what day the common people will rise up out of the abyss the labor castes and the oligarchy will crumble away and then at last after the travail of the centuries will it be the day of the common man i had thought to see that day but now i know that I shall never see it. He paused, and looked at me, and added, Social evolution is exasperatingly slow, isn't it, sweetheart? My arms were about him, and his head was on my breast. See me to sleep, he murmured whimsically. I have had a visioning, and I wish to forget. End of chapter 14 Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, Mattsaw.org. It was near the end of January 1913 that the changed attitude of the oligarchy towards the favoured unions was made public. The newspapers published information of an unprecedented rise in wages and shortening of hours for the railroad employees, the iron and steel workers, and the engineers and machinists. But the whole truth was not told. The oligarchs did not dare permit the telling of the whole truth. In reality, the wages had been raised much higher and the privileges were correspondingly greater. All this was secret, but secrets were out. Members of the favored unions told their wives, and the wives gossiped. And soon all the labor world knew what had happened. It was merely the logical development of what in the 19th century had been known as grab-sharing. In the industrial warfare of that time, profit-sharing had been tried. That is, the capitalists had striven to placate the workers by interesting them financially in their work, but profit-sharing as a system was ridiculous and impossible. Profit-sharing could be successful only in isolated cases in the midst of a system of industrial strife, for if all labor and all capital shared profits, the same conditions would obtain as did obtain when there was no profit-sharing. So, out of the unpractical idea of profit-sharing arose the practical idea of grab-sharing. "'Give us more pay and charge it to the public!' was the slogan of the strong unions and here and there this selfish policy worked successfully in charging it to the public it was charged to the great mass of unorganized labor and of weakly organized labor these workers actually paid the increased wages of their stronger brothers who were members of unions that were labor monopolies this idea as i say was merely carried to its logical conclusion on a large scale by the combination of the oligarchs and the favored unions note All the railroad unions entered into this combination with the oligarchs and it is of interest to note that the first definite application of the policy of profit-grabbing was made by a railroad union in the 19th century AD namely the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers PM Arthur was for 20 years Grand Chief of the Brotherhood after the strike on the Pennsylvania Railroad in 1877 he broached a scheme to have the locomotive engineers make terms with the railroads and to go it alone so far as the rest of the labor unions were concerned the scheme was eminently successful It was as successful as it was selfish, and out of it was coined the word authorisation to denote grab-sharing on the part of labour unions. This word, authorisation, has long puzzled the etymologists, but its derivation, I hope, is now made clear. As soon as the secret of the defection of the favoured unions leaked out, there were rumblings and mutterings in the labour world. Next, the favoured unions withdrew from the international organisations and broke off all affiliations. Then came trouble and violence. The members of the favored unions were branded as traitors, and in saloons and brothels, on the streets and at work, and in fact everywhere, they were assaulted by the comrades they had so treacherously deserted. Countless heads were broken, and there were many killed. No member of the favored unions was safe. They gathered together in bands in order to go to work or to return from work. They walked always in the middle of the street. On the sidewalk, they were liable to have their skulls crushed by bricks and cobblestones thrown from windows and housetops. They were permitted to carry weapons, and the authorities aided them in every way. Their persecutors were sentenced to long terms in prison, where they were harshly treated, while no man, not a member of the favored unions, was permitted to carry weapons. Violation of this law was made a high misdemeanor and punished accordingly. Outraged labor continued to wreak vengeance on the traitors. Cast lines formed automatically. The children of the traitors were persecuted by the children of the workers who had been betrayed until it was impossible for the former to play on the streets or to attend the public schools also the wives and families of the traitors were ostracized while the corner groceryman who sold provisions to them was boycotted as a result driven back upon themselves from every side the traitors and their families became clannish finding it impossible to dwell in safety in the midst of the betrayed proletariat they moved into new localities inhabited by themselves alone In this they were favoured by the oligarchs. Good dwellings, modern and sanitary, were built for them, surrounded by spacious yards, and separated here and there by parks and playgrounds. Their children attended schools especially built for them, and in these schools manual training and applied science were specialised upon. Thus, and unavoidably, at the very beginning, out of this segregation arose caste. The members of the favoured unions became the aristocracy of labour, They were set apart from the rest of labor. They were better housed, better clothed, better fed, better treated. They were grab-sharing with a vengeance. In the meantime, the rest of the working class was more harshly treated. Many little privileges were taken away from it, while its wages and its standard of living steadily sank down. Incidentally, its public schools deteriorated, and education slowly ceased to be compulsory. The increase in the younger generation of children who could not read nor write was perilous. The capture of the world market by the United States had disrupted the rest of the world. Institutions and governments were everywhere, crashing or transforming. Germany, Italy, France, Australia and New Zealand were busy forming cooperative commonwealths. The British Empire was falling apart. England's hands were full. In India, revolt was in full swing. The cry in all Asia was, Asia for the Asiatics, and behind this cry was Japan, ever urging and aiding the yellow and brown races against the white. And while Japan dreamed of continental empire and strove to realize the dream, she suppressed her own proletarian revolution. It was a simple war of the castes, coolie versus Samurai, and the coolie socialists were executed by tens of thousands. 40,000 were killed in the street fighting of Tokyo and in the futile assault on the Mikado's palace. Kobe was a shambles. The slaughter of the cotton operatives by machine guns became classic as the most terrific execution ever achieved by modern war machines. Most savage of all was the Japanese oligarchy that arose. Japan dominated the East and took to herself the whole Asiatic portion of the world market with the exception of India. England managed to crush her own proletarian revolution and to hold on to India though she was brought to the verge of exhaustion. Also, she was compelled to let her great colonies slip away from her so it was that the socialists succeeded in making Australia and New Zealand into cooperative commonwealths. And it was for the same reason that Canada was lost to the mother country. But Canada crushed her own socialist revolution, being aided in this by the Iron Heel. At the same time, the Iron Heel helped Mexico and Cuba to put down revolt. The result was that the Iron Heel was firmly established in the New World. It had welded into one compact political mass the whole of North America from the Panama Canal to the Arctic Ocean. And England, at the sacrifice of her great colonies, had succeeded only in retaining India. But this was no more than temporary. The struggle with Japan and the rest of Asia for India was merely delayed. England was destined shortly to lose India, while behind that event loomed the struggle between a united Asia and the world. And while all the world was torn with conflict, we of the United States were not placid and peaceful. The defection of the great unions had prevented our proletarian revolt, but violence was everywhere. In addition to the labor troubles and the discontent of the farmers and of the remnant of the middle class, a religious revival had blazed up. An offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventists sprang into sudden prominence, proclaiming the end of the world. Confusion thrice confounded, Ernest cried. How can we hope for solidarity with all these cross-purposes and conflicts? and truly the religious revival assumed formidable proportions. The people, what of their wretchedness and of their disappointment in all things earthly, were ripe and eager for a heaven where industrial tyrants entered no more than camels passed through needle-eyes. Wild-eyed, itinerant preachers swarmed over the land, and despite the prohibition of the civil authorities and the persecution for disobedience, the flames of religious frenzy were fanned by countless camp meetings. It was the last days, they claimed, the beginning of the end of the world. The four winds had been loosed. God had stirred the nations to strive. It was a time of visions and miracles, while seers and prophetesses were legion. The people ceased work by hundreds of thousands and fled to the mountains, there to await the imminent coming of God and the rising of the hundred and forty and four thousand to heaven. But in the meantime, God did not come, and they starved to death in great numbers. In their desperation, they ravaged the farms for food, and the consequent tumult and anarchy in the country districts, but increased the woes of the poor, expropriated farmers. Also, the farms and warehouses were the property of the Iron Heel. Armies of troops were put into the field, and the fanatics were herded back at the bayonet point to their tasks in the cities. There they broke out in ever-recurring mobs and riots. Their leaders were executed for sedition, or confined in madhouses. Those who were executed went to their deaths with all the gladness of martyrs. It was a time of madness. The unrest spread, In the swamps and deserts and waste places, from Florida to Alaska, the small groups of Indians that survived were dancing ghost dances and waiting the coming of a messiah of their own. And through it all, with a serenity and certitude that was terrifying, continued to rise the form of that monster of the ages, the oligarchy. With iron hand and iron heel, it mastered the surging millions, out of confusion brought order, out of the very chaos wrought its own foundation and structure. Just wait till we get in, the Grangers said. Calvin said it to us, in our Pell Street quarters. Look at the states we've captured. With you socialists to back us, we'll make them sing another song when we take office. The millions of the discontented and the impoverished are ours, the socialists said. The Grangers have come over to us, the farmers, the middle class, and the laborers. The capitalist system will fall to pieces. In another month, we send 50 men to Congress. Two years hence, every office will be ours, from the president down to the local dog-catcher. To all of which, Ernest would shake his head and say, How many rifles have you got? Do you know where you can get plenty of lead? When it comes to powder, chemical mixtures are better than mechanical mixtures. You take my word. End of chapter 15 Recording by Matt Saw Montreal Mattsaw.org Recording by Matt Saw The End When it came time for Ernest and me to go to Washington, Father did not accompany us. He had become enamored of proletarian life. He looked upon our slum neighborhood as a great sociological laboratory, and he had embarked upon an apparently endless orgy of investigation. He chummed with the laborers and was an intimate in scores of homes, Also, he worked at odd jobs, and the work was play as well as learned investigation, for he delighted in it, and was always returning home with copious notes and bubbling over with new adventures. He was the perfect scientist. There was no need for his working at all, because Ernest managed to earn enough for his translating to take care of the three of us, but Father insisted on pursuing his favorite phantom, and a protein phantom it was, judging from the jobs he worked at. I shall never forget the evening he brought home his street peddler's outfit of shoelaces and suspenders, nor the time I went into the little corner grocery to make some purchase and had him wait on me. After that, I was not surprised when he tended bar for a week in the saloon across the street. He worked as a night watchman, hawked potatoes on the street, pasted labels in a cannery warehouse, was utility man in a paper box factory, and water carrier for a street railway construction gang, and even joined the dishwasher's union just before it fell to pieces. I think the bishop's example, so far as wearing apparel was concerned, must have fascinated father, for he wore the cheap cotton shirt of the laborer and the overalls with a narrow strap about the hips. Yet one habit remained to him from the old life. He always dressed for dinner, or supper, rather. I could be happy anywhere with Ernest, and father's happiness in our changed circumstances rounded out my own happiness. When I was a boy, father said, I was very curious. I wanted to know why things were and how they came to pass. That was why I became a physicist. The life in me today is just as curious as it was in my boyhood, and it's the being curious that makes life worth living. Sometimes he ventured north of Market Street into the shopping and theatre district, where he sold papers, ran errands, and opened cabs. There, one day closing a cab, he encountered Mr. Wixon. In high glee, Father described the incident to us that evening. Wixson looked at me sharply when I closed the door on him, "'and muttered, "'Well, I'll be damned.' "'Just like that he said it, "'Well, I'll be damned.' "'His face turned red, and he was so confused that he forgot to tip me. "'But he must have recovered himself quickly, "'for the cab hadn't gone fifty feet before it turned around and came back. "'He leaned out of the door. "'Look here, Professor,' he said. "'This is too much. What can I do for you?' "'I closed the cab door for you,' I answered. "'According to common custom, you might give me a dime.' "'Bother that?' he snorted. "'I mean something substantial.' "'He was certainly serious, "'a twinge of ossified conscience or something, "'and so I considered with grave deliberation for a moment.' "'His face was quite expectant when I began my answer, "'but you should have seen it when I finished. "'You might give me back my home,' I said, "'and my stock in the Sierra Mills.' "'Father paused. "'What did he say?' I questioned eagerly. "'What could he say? He said nothing.' but I said, I hope you are happy. He looked at me curiously. Tell me, are you happy? I asked. He ordered the cabman to drive on, and went away swearing horribly, but he didn't give me the dime, much less the home and stock. So you see, my dear, your father's street Arab career is beset with disappointments. And so it was that father kept on at our Pell Street quarters, while Ernest and I went to Washington. Except for the final consummation, the old order had passed away, and the final consummation was nearer than I dreamed. Contrary to our expectation, no obstacles were raised to prevent the socialist congressmen from taking their seats. Everything went smoothly, and I laughed at Ernest when he looked upon the very smoothness as something ominous. We found our socialist comrades confident, optimistic of their strength and of the things they would accomplish. A few Grangers who had been elected to Congress increased our strength, and an elaborate program of what was to be done was prepared by the United Forces in all of which Ernest joined loyally and energetically, though he could not forbear now and again from saying, apropos of nothing in particular, When it comes to powder, chemical mixtures are better than mechanical mixtures. You take my word. The trouble arose first with the Grangers in the various states they had captured at the last election. There were a dozen of these states, but the Grangers who had been elected were not permitted to take office. The incumbents refused to get out. It was very simple. They merely charged illegality in the elections and wrapped up the whole situation in the interminable red tape of the law. The Grangers were powerless. The courts were in the hands of their enemies. This was the moment of danger. If the cheated Grangers became violent, all was lost. Now we socialists worked to hold them back. There were days and nights when Ernest never closed his eyes in sleep. The big leaders of the Grangers saw the peril and were with us to a man. But it was all of no avail. The oligarchy wanted violence and it set its agent provocateur to work. Without discussion, it was the agent provocateur who caused the peasant revolt. In a dozen states, the revolt flared up. The expropriated farmers took forcible possession of the state governments. Of course, this was unconstitutional, and of course the United States put its soldiers into the field. Everywhere, the agent provocateur urged the people on. These emissaries of the Iron Heel disguised themselves as artisans, farmers, and farm laborers. In Sacramento, the capital of California, the Grangers had succeeded in maintaining order. Thousands of secret agents were rushed to the devoted city. In mobs composed wholly of themselves, they fired and looted buildings and factories. They worked the people up until they joined them in the pillage. Liquor in large quantities was distributed among the slum classes further to inflame their minds. And then, when all was ready, appeared upon the scene the soldiers of the United States, who were in reality the soldiers of the Iron Heel. 11,000 men, women and children were shot down on the streets of Sacramento or murdered in their houses. The national government took possession of the state government and all was over for California. And as with California so elsewhere. Every Granger state was ravaged with violence and washed in blood. First disorder was precipitated by the secret agents and the black hundreds. Then the troops were called out. Rioting and mob rule reigned throughout the rural districts. Day and night, the smoke of burning farms, warehouses, villages, and cities filled the sky. Dynamite appeared. Railroad bridges and tunnels were blown up, and trains were wrecked. The poor farmers were shot and hanged in great numbers. Reprisals were bitter, and many plutocrats and army officers were murdered. Blood and vengeance were in men's hearts. The regular troops fought the farmers as savagely as had they been Indians, and the regular troops had cause. 2,800 of them had been annihilated in a tremendous series of dynamite explosions in Oregon, and in a similar manner a number of trainloads at different times and places had been destroyed. So it was that the regular troops fought for their lives as well as did the farmers. As for the militia, the militia law of 1903 was put into effect, and the workers of one state were compelled, under pain of death, to shoot down their comrade workers in other states, Of course, the militia law did not work smoothly at first. Many militia officers were murdered, and many militiamen were executed by drumhead court-martial. Ernest's prophecy was strikingly fulfilled in the cases of Mr. Cowalt and Mr. Asmundson. Both were eligible for the militia, and both were drafted to serve in the punitive expedition that was dispatched from California against the farmers of Missouri. Mr. Cowalt and Mr. Asmundson refused to serve. They were given short shrift. Drumhead court-martial was their portion and military execution their end. They were shot with their backs to the firing squad. Many young men fled into the mountains to escape serving in the militia. There they became outlaws and it was not until more peaceful times that they received their punishment. It was drastic. The government issued a proclamation for all law-abiding citizens to come in from the mountains for a period of three months. When the proclaimed date arrived half a million soldiers were sent into the mountainous districts everywhere. There was no investigation, no trial. Wherever a man was encountered, he was shot down on the spot. The troops operated on the basis that no man, not an outlaw, remained in the mountains. Some bands in strong positions fought gallantly, but in the end, every deserter from the militia met death. A more immediate lesson, however, was impressed on the minds of the people by the punishment meted out to the Kansas militia, The great Kansas mutiny occurred at the very beginning of military operations against the Grangers. Six thousand of the militia mutinied. They had been for several weeks very turbulent and sullen, and for that reason had been kept in camp. Their open mutiny, however, was without doubt precipitated by the agent provocateur. On the night of the 22nd of April, they arose and murdered their officers, only a small remnant of the latter escaping. This was beyond the scheme of the Iron Heel, for the agent provocateur had done their work too well. But everything was grist, to the Iron Heel. It had prepared for the outbreak, and the killing of so many officers gave it justification for what followed. As by magic, 40,000 soldiers of the regular army surrounded the Malkanton. It was a trap. The wretched militiamen found that their machine guns had been tampered with, and that the cartridges from the captured magazines did not fit their rifles. They hoisted the white flag of surrender, but it was ignored. There were no survivors. The entire 6,000 were annihilated. Common shell and shrapnel were thrown in upon them from a distance, and when, in their desperation, they charged the encircling lines, they were mowed down by the machine guns. I talked with an eyewitness, and he said that the nearest any militiaman approached the machine guns was a 150 yards. The earth was carpeted with the slain, and a final charge of cavalry, with trampling of horses' hooves, revolvers, and sabres, crushed the wounded into the ground. Simultaneously with the destruction of the Grangers, came the revolt of the coal miners. It was the expiring effort of organized labor. Three quarters of a million of miners went out on strike, but they were too widely scattered over the country to advantage from their own strength. They were segregated in their own districts and beaten into submission. This was the first great slave drive. Pocock won his spurs as a slave driver and earned the undying hatred of the proletariat. Countless attempts were made upon his life, but he seemed to bear a charmed existence. It was he who was responsible for the introduction of the Russian passport system among the miners, and the denial of their right to a removal from one part of the country to another. Note: Albert Pocock, another of the notorious strikebreakers of earlier years, who, to the day of his death, successfully held all the coal miners of the country to their task. He was succeeded by his son, Louis Pocock, and for five generations this remarkable line of slave drivers handled the coal mines. The elder Pocock, known as Pocock I, has been described as follows a long, lean head semicircled by a fringe of brown and grey hair, with big cheekbones and a heavy chin, a pale face, lustreless grey eyes, a metallic voice, and a languid manner. He was born of humble parents and began his career as a bartender. He next became a private detective for a street railway corporation, and by successive steps developed into a professional strikebreaker. Pocock V, the last of the line, was blown up in a pump house by a bomb during a petty revolt of the miners in the Indian Territory. This occurred in 2073 AD. In the meantime, the socialists held firm. While the Grangers expired in flame and blood, and organized labor was disrupted, the socialists held their peace and perfected their secret organization. In vain, the Grangers pleaded with us. We rightly contended that any revolt on our part was virtually suicide for the whole revolution. The Iron Heel, at first dubious about dealing with the entire proletariat at one time, had found the work easier than it had expected, and would have asked nothing better than an uprising on our part. But we avoided the issue, in spite of the fact that agents provocateurs swarmed in our midst. In those early days, the agents of the Iron Heel were clumsy in their methods. They had much to learn, and in the meantime our fighting groups weeded them out. It was bitter, bloody work, but we were fighting for life and for the revolution, and we had to fight the enemy with its own weapons. Yet we were fair. No agent of the Iron Heel was executed without a trial. We may have made mistakes, but if so, very rarely. The bravest and the most combative and self-sacrificing of our comrades went into the fighting groups. Once, after ten years had passed, Ernest made a calculation from figures furnished by the chiefs of the fighting groups And his conclusion was that the average life of a man or woman after becoming a member was five years the comrades of the fighting groups were heroes all and the peculiar thing about it was that they were opposed to the taking of life they violated their own natures yet they loved liberty and knew of no sacrifice too great to make for the cause note these fighting groups were modeled somewhat after the fighting organization of the russian revolution and despite the unceasing efforts of the Iron Heel, these groups persisted throughout the three centuries of its existence. Composed of men and women actuated by lofty purpose and unafraid to die, the fighting groups exercised tremendous influence and tempered the savage brutality of the rulers. Not alone was their work confined to unseen warfare with the secret agents of the oligarchy. The oligarchs themselves were compelled to listen to the decrees of the groups, and often, when they disobeyed, were punished by death, and likewise with the subordinates of the oligarchs, with the officers of the army and the leaders of the labor castes. Stern justice was meted out by these organized avengers, but most remarkable was their passionless and judicial procedure. There were no snap judgments. When a man was captured, he was given fair trial and opportunity for defense. Of necessity, many men were tried and condemned by proxy, as in the case of General Lambton. This occurred in 2138 AD, possibly the most bloodthirsty and malignant of all the mercenaries that ever served the Iron Heel, He was informed by the fighting groups that they had tried him found him guilty and condemned him to death and this after three warnings for him to cease from his ferocious treatment of the proletariat after his condemnation he surrounded himself with a myriad protective devices years passed and in vain the fighting groups strove to execute their decree comrade after comrade men and women failed in their attempts and were cruelly executed by the oligarchy it was the case of general lampton that revived crucifixion as a legal method of execution But in the end, the condemned man found his executioner in the form of a slender girl of seventeen, Madeleine Provence, who, to accomplish her purpose, served two years in his palace as a seamstress to the household. She died in solitary confinement after horrible and prolonged torture, but today she stands in imperishable bronze in the pantheon of brotherhood in the wonder city of Searle. We, who by personal experience know nothing of bloodshed, must not judge harshly the heroes of the fighting groups. They gave up their lives for humanity no sacrifice was too great for them to accomplish while inexorable necessity compelled them to bloody expression in an age of blood the fighting groups constituted the one thorn in the side of the iron heel that the iron heel could never remove everhard was the father of this curious army and its accomplishments and successful persistence for 300 years bear witness to the wisdom with which he organized and the solid foundation he laid for the succeeding generations to build upon in some respects, despite his great economic and sociological contributions and his work as a general leader in the revolution, his organization of the fighting groups must be regarded as his greatest achievement. The task we set ourselves was threefold. First, the weeding out from our circles of the secret agents of the oligarchy. Second, the organizing of the fighting groups and outside of them of the general secret organization of the revolution. And third, the introduction of our own secret agents into every branch of the oligarchy, into the labor castes, and especially among the telegraphers and secretaries and clerks, into the army, the agent provocateur, and the slave drivers. It was slow work and perilous, and often were our efforts rewarded with costly failures. The Iron Heel had triumphed in open warfare, but we held our own in the new warfare, strange and awful and subterranean, that we instituted. All was unseen, much was unguessed. The blind fought the blind, and yet through it all was order, purpose, control. We permeated the entire organization of the Iron Heel with our agents, while our own organization was permeated with the agents of the Iron Heel. It was warfare, dark and devious, replete with intrigue and conspiracy, plot and counterplot, and behind all, ever menacing, was death, violent and terrible. Men and women disappeared, our nearest and dearest comrades. We saw them today, tomorrow they were gone, we never saw them again, and we knew that they had died. There was no trust, no confidence anywhere. The man who plotted beside us for all we knew might be an agent of the Iron Heel. We mined the organization of the Iron Heel with our secret agents, and the Iron Heel countermined with its secret agents inside its own organization, and it was the same with our organization. And despite the absence of confidence and trust, We were compelled to base our every effort on confidence and trust. Often were we betrayed. Men were weak. The Iron Heel could offer money, leisure, the joys and pleasures that awaited in the repose of the Wonder Cities. We could offer nothing but the satisfaction of being faithful to a noble ideal. As for the rest, the wages of those who were loyal were unceasing peril, torture and death. Men were weak, I say, and because of their weakness, we were compelled to make the only other reward that was within our power. It was the reward of death. Out of necessity, we had to punish our traitors. For every man who betrayed us, from one to a dozen faithful avengers were loosed upon his heels. We might fail to carry out our decrees against our enemies, such as the Pococks, for instance, but the one thing we could not afford to fail in was the punishment of our own traitors. Comrades turned traitor by permission, in order to win to the Wonder Cities and there execute our sentences on the real traitors. In fact, so terrible did we make ourselves that it became a greater peril to betray us than to remain loyal to us. The Revolution took on largely the character of religion. We worshipped at the Shrine of the Revolution, which was the Shrine of Liberty. It was the Divine flashing through us. Men and women devoted their lives to the cause, and newborn babes were sealed to it As of old, they had been sealed to the service of God. We were lovers of humanity. End of chapter 16. Recording by Matt Saw, Montreal, matsaw.org.